0: One of the glories of our practice is how we learn more to be with whatever is happening in more and more skillful ways, in ways that whatever is occurring is workable. And particularly, in particular, one of the glories of our practice is developing more and more the capacity to be with what's difficult or challenging. And I want to explore that this evening, that capacity particularly through using the tools of mindfulness and what we can call the heart practices, loving kindness, compassion, forgiveness and so forth. And both in general in terms of our practice but also very much in terms of being with what occurs linked with uh, what we're calling aging and dying. And this way it's really to come back to some of what Anna was exploring in the morning when, and we could say it this way, in terms of our practice, in some ways it doesn't matter what's happening. What matters is how we relate to what's happening. That's right at the center of everything. And one of the reasons we practice and keep on with the silent practice, some of us might say, well, let's, let's get to aging and dying. Hey, what's with the breath, right? you know? And um, I think part of what we wanna convey is that the part of our practice is actually um, not different. uh, when we compare how we approach it in general with how we approach our practice when we're close to the phenomena of aging and dying. And I also wanted to say that I'm giving this talk not as an expert on aging and dying. Or not even as someone who necessarily knows more than you do. Uh, But I do know a fair amount about practice. So I'm going to talk uh, a lot about that, but also connect it with experiences of aging and dying. And it's actually, uh, today, is uh, my mother's birthday. And she died about uh, two and a half years ago. And I'll bring in some elements of the uh, story of uh, her dying and the aftermath there. And maybe just one more thing to say by way of uh, a kind of a beginning, it's that one of the ways that I hold this retreat, and it's related to uh, some of where Anna's been going, is that we are, by we, I mean uh, North America, Western culture in the last hundred years, in many places, especially the urban areas, we are strange in some ways, strange in many ways, but uh, virtually all other cultures, in a sense, had elders at the center of the culture. Who, they were the ones who would give wise counsel, in a sense, hold the um, community. And in many ways we've lost that. And in fact, we know that we've kind of come, it's come up from time to time, if anything, elders are mocked. Certainly you can see that in the advertising and so forth. And there's not a... There's not that, that uh, lack of respect is very common. Maybe not universal, but very common. And so one of the ways that I hold this retreat is that, that we are looking to develop a generation who can truly be elders. We need that at this time of intensifying crises. We need elders in many, many ways. And I think that we may be here, we're in training to be elders. And so we have to train in mindfulness. We have to train in heart practices. have to train in, in all these areas. There's an author who, from whom I've learned named uh, Stephen Jakinson, who's from Canada. Some of you may know his work. He wrote a book called Die Wise and has a, a new book on, on elders. He said, getting older is inevitable, at least if you live that long. <laughs> Getting older is inevitable. Becoming an elder is a skill. So I think we're in training for that. So we know that there are a whole range of difficult experiences related to aging and dying. You know, we can go across the board, the body, the emotions, and so forth, and um, we really make use of the core teachings of our tradition. Again, I'm saying that the way we approach challenging experiences related to aging and dying is no different, in essence, from how we approach other traditions. I wanted to point to a few teachings. Uh, two of them are from the uh, Tibetan tradition. One of them goes like this. It's a, it's a kind of a Tibetan saying: "When the sun shines and my belly is full, I look like a Dharma practitioner." <laughs> but when faced with trouble, my faults are exposed. And also from the Tibetan tradition, this is from the uh, Lojong teachings, which are a bunch of uh, slogans or phrases. Turn all obstacles into the path of practice. Turn all obstacles into the path of practice. And then I think the, um, the core teaching from the uh, suttas, from the discourses of the, the Buddha, really follow from what we were exploring this morning on the teachings on Vedana, feeling tone, uh, how we work with the sense of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And uh, the tendencies, when the, you know, according to our habitual energies, when we are not aware of the pleasant, we tend to grasp. And when we're not aware of the unpleasant, we tend to compulsively push away. And so a lot of the training is learning how to be with what's uh, challenging or difficult without being caught in habitual energies. This is a training. This is, goes against maybe what some of us initially came to meditation from. This is a cartoon of a young meditator, could be an old meditator. Deep aspiration, it shows the meditator sitting, wonderful posture saying, Today, I will live in the moment. Unless the moment is unpleasant, in which case I will eat a cookie. (laughs) And there's this very basic uh, teaching, which I, I wanna give. It's really probably my favorite teaching from the Buddha. And some of you know this. Anyone who's ever heard me give a talk has a good likelihood of having heard this teaching. Uh, It's the teaching of the two arrows. How many of you know this teaching? Oh, wonderful. So I can be brief. So this is really, this is a core teaching. This is really the teaching which can guide us. And the teaching goes like this. The Buddha was talking with practitioners and said, everyone at times experiences the unpleasant. How is a practitioner different from a non-practitioner? As was often the case, he did not get an answer from his practitioners. So he said, okay, I guess I'll answer it myself. And so he said, everyone at times experiences the unpleasant. And we could say that they're unpleasant bodily experiences. They're unpleasant emotional experiences. They're unpleasant uh, thoughts. We have unpleasant interpersonal encounters. We're treated unfairly sometimes, unjustly. And in that, everyone is the same. And the Buddha said that having those difficult experiences, the unpleasant experiences, is like being shot by an arrow. And he talked, in the, in the text, he talked primarily about uh, unpleasant experiences of body, but I'm sort of broadening it to refer to all experiences. And he said that in uh, sometimes having unpleasant experiences, every... One is the same. He said that, that uh, unpleasant experiences like being shot by an arrow. He called that the first arrow. He said everyone at times gets shot by the first arrow. What differentiates the practitioner from the non-practitioner? And by non-practitioner, it means practitioners when they're not practicing. <laughs> Just to be clear. <laughs> um, the differentiation is that the Non-practitioner reacts to the unpleasant in various ways. And so we could say that when there's something unpleasant on a bodily level, we may tense or we may blame ourselves or blame someone else for what's happening. We know very well how when we have difficult emotional experiences or interpersonal experiences, We may judge, blame, create negative narratives. I have a 10-second encounter with my partner in the morning. It's difficult. My reaction preoccupies me the next two weeks. (laughs) And we can have those kind of reactions. The Buddha said that's like shooting a second arrow. We could call that arrow Reactivity, resistance, it's like that's in one, one reason why I prefer as a translation of dukkha, I prefer the word reactivity because it really gets at, suffering as a translation is ambiguous. Sometimes it makes us think when we think of overcoming suffering that we can get rid of the unpleasant, which is not the case. But we can increasingly not be reactive. And the aim, I think, of the whole practice is to be able to be present without reactivity. We learn, in other words, not to shoot the second arrow. That's really, I think, a way to look at it. And so concretely, what this means is how do we approach difficult experiences when they are occurring, including in the area of of dying and aging, with non-reactivity, with compassion, with skillful response. That's a way to frame things. And there are all sorts of challenging experiences that we have in terms of the body and emotions. We know that the you know, there are losses. You know, there's a nice essay by Wes Nisker. He talks about some of the issues that occur at a bodily level as he entered his 70s. This is Wes, who's teaching upstairs. (laughs) First, my eyes spoke up. Mr. Nisker, we've seen enough. We're getting tired of gazing at beautiful sunsets and looking for lost socks in dark closets, and we're especially tired of all that reading you do, looking at those little squiggly black marks on the white background for hours at a time. At this age, you aren't going to learn anything new anyway, so we've decided to kick back here in your head, relax the old receptors and focusing muscles and go into semi-retirement. <laughs> around the same time, my bells spoke up. They've been talking to me my whole life, but suddenly they started singing a different tune. <laughs> Mr. Nisker, we're tired of your crap. <laughs> tired of pushing around a couple of shitloads a day, so we're going on a work slowdown. You used to take a newspaper into the toilet with you, but you better start taking a novel. <laughs> my bowels had obviously not consulted with my eyes. And then he just goes on, does a whole body scan in a similar vein. So you know, there are difficult bodily experiences we have. I mean, I, I remember last week as I was beginning to prepare this talk, I had a cold sore in my mouth. And it was somewhat painful to eat. And it felt like a big deal. And here I was, I was preparing for this retreat on aging and dying and knowing that in the scheme of things, a cold score is not that big a deal. But in the moment, it was was big. It wasn't fun. Some resistance. A second arrow or two right so we know that we and we know all sorts of difficult emotions come in general and in the context of aging and dying you know depression anxiety fear sadness grief anger despair loneliness this is the probably could add ten more but this is what we have to be skillful with you know and I know for myself Again, I, I said that one of the glories of our practice is being able to be more skillful with challenging experiences. I know for me it's been amazing over you know, a lot of uh, years of practice, I've been blessed to have retreats where I specialized in many of the emotions I just described and other difficult experiences. So I had one fear retreat. Got to look at fear most of the day for six or eight days in a row. Another anger retreat where I was angry 18 hours a day for 10 days. A quite long self-judgment retreat (laughs) and so forth. But what, what, what happens when one does that is that there's that continual inquiry and something changes. And there's, you know, some of these take a while, but there's more freedom in relation to the experiences we've looked into. And there are difficult mind states that occur. Again, self-judgment, judgment judgment of others, self-hatred, these can all occur in relationship to aging and dying as well as generally. Wanting, loss of meaning, forming negative scenarios, negative narratives and getting caught in them. Difficult relational issues, you know any stress related to dying will intensify the the, uh, difficult places in relationships, in families and, and in general. So how to respond skillfully to difficult experiences in general? I want to name a few things and focus especially a little bit on mindfulness, some on mindfulness, and then um, more on the heart practices. So I want to name a few key components for being skillful with challenges. One of them is to um, work with clear intention. I'll probably bring in intention some tomorrow morning. It's one of the key elements in our practice to go into a challenging time and have clarity of intention. You know, that one intention might be, I'm going to try to learn from this experience. Or I'm going to try to bring my best mindfulness here. Or my best compassion. Intentions don't guarantee anything, but they help. And it can be a whole practice to work with intentions. Another important dimension of being with challenging experiences, which isn't always talked about, is making an assessment of the level of intensity of what's happening. That's quite crucial. Because there's some experiences that we can't really be mindful of, at least in the moment. You know, so I I work a lot with people and we try to say, okay, on a scale of one to 10, with 10 being the most intense, what's what's the level of intensity? And I'm particularly looking at those higher level of intensity experiences as one where we're lost in them. Where it's very hard, if not impossible, to be mindful. Sometimes that might come up with trauma or with certain experiences where we're just so locked in that actually the most skillful thing is to get out of that state. And that's not always taught in retreats or elsewhere. And I've talked with people who've had trauma arise in retreats and they thought, oh, I'm kind of aware this is happening. But actually they were lost in it and was not so skillful to just be with overwhelming experiences. Some of you know there's a learning model which, in which there's identification of the comfort zone, the discomfort zone, and the overwhelm zone. Guess where learning occurs? Guess where most learning occurs? Sorry to tell you. Sorry to tell you it's the discomfort zone. I think we learn, I think there are ways that we learn when when things are very beautiful and pleasant. But um, in the overwhelm zone, we can't really learn because we can't really be there. It's too much. And so I think it's important to really clarify that and to have a repertoire of ways to come back to balance. If that comes up in the sitting or in, in the flow of daily life. So again, we're probably familiar with what can help. Again, mindfulness, just naming what's happening is crucial. And then to, for some of us, we can use meditative experiences, meditative tools like metta, you know, loving-kindness. In the stories of the Buddha, loving-kindness was an antidote to fear, particularly overwhelming fear. So because it has the capacity of samadhi or concentration, it can actually cut through that overwhelm. So samadhi has the potential to cut through overwhelm, but we have to be able to, to get there. Others might be just to, you know, remove oneself from the situation, take a walk do something physical, talk to friends, just to somehow come out, we, we know that. But it's good to have a sense of having a toolbox or a repertoire for what to do when there's overwhelm. Very key, I think, and not to, you know, we kind of know it's happening, but we actually can't be so skillful and stay with it. Right. So that's, that's important. it's very helpful in that context to have a number of body practices. You know, I think very crucial to have something like yoga, qigong, some way to come back to the body in a way that is restorative. And to have, a, again, as we've been emphasizing, to have an ongoing way of relating to, to the body. Because a lot of what is really helpful is to explore the challenging experiences at the level of mind, body, and emotion. I really see how they're manifesting at all levels. And there are also, I'll, I'll mention in a while, uh, heart practices are really crucial. And, you know, in interactive context, speech and relational practices are crucial. See, See, we kind of have a curriculum, don't we? <laughs> Much of which we're not gonna even get to on this retreat. So that's the elders' curriculum. I'm naming it. And then mindfulness and wisdom. And again, um, mindfulness is such a core tool. If things are more or less in the workable range, we can work with mindfulness in a few ways. We can name what's happening. Starting point for really being able to be skillful. We can also explore and investigate as we've been doing. In, in other ways, in our, in our afternoons. And as we were guided to, I think, this morning, we can actually, something is occurring, anger, despair, we can investigate what's it like in the mind. There's a practice we can do, maybe we'll do it tomorrow morning, where we almost like change channels. What's it like in the mind, this experience? What's it like in the body? What emotions are there? How does it change? My anger retreat, one of the crucial Instructions I got was watch what happens to anger when it shifts. Notice the arising and passing of the emotions. And then see if we can see patterns, what what tends to trigger a particular emotion, particularly a difficult one. Look at the patterns of uh, triggering, of arising, and get to know some of those patterns. I wanted to talk a little bit about one way that I explored this exploration of difficult emotions which was actually after the death of my mother which was um, unexpected she was actually coming uh, in January of 2016 coming to hear me give a talk at Spirit Rock the talk actually was on impermanence and she was being driven and they were in a left turn lane coming from Petaluma and uh, there wasn't a left there wasn't actually a left turn lane they were making a left turn and someone plowed into them and we thought at first there there were injuries the driver was uninjured the car was totaled and my mom had quite a few broken ribs, and she was 92. And we thought that she would, uh, we thought that she would uh, come through it, you know. And that was the sense of things for about five weeks. And about three days before she actually died, the doctors told us she may only have six months to live, which is a huge shock. And then a few hours later they say, she may only have one or two days. Talk about not knowing, (laughs) right? And so it's a big shock, Uh, not much time for preparatory grief. And I was also scheduled to go on retreat at the end of February for a month and she died uh, six days before the beginning of this retreat. And you know my siblings and I, we agreed to put off practical things for a while so I could have my retreat, which was a gift. And so I more or less went into this retreat with the grief uh, and everything very uh, alive. And I wanted to talk a little bit about that process because one of the benefits of being on retreat for those four weeks without anything to do is that the grief process just came right through in a pretty clean way. And it was quite powerful. and I want to talk some about some of the dynamics of that, because it was very, it was very interesting. And um, And I think, you know one of the things that I learned right when I first started teaching on death and dying when I was like 31, and teaching that course, I found out that the dynamics of grieving were fairly similar for all sorts of different kinds of losses. When I was working with, these were working with young people, the dynamics of their grief for the death of a pet or the loss of a relationship wasn't so much different from the loss of a grandparent. It was interesting, it was interesting to see that. And so I began began the retreat and I was also, one of the things that I, I, I work with a lot, uh, not, not so much work with, but that I observe, uh, are dreams. And uh, on retreat, I typically remember uh, four to ten dreams a night. It was really interesting to track the grieving process through dreams. It was very, very clear. So you can imagine initially, there's a lot of shock. A tremendous level of shock and uh, disbelief. Um, I wrote a poem near the beginning. It went like this. Lying so quietly on the hospital bed in her bedroom, no breath now, no pain or restlessness, as if ready to wake up, I look for signs of movement. I would not be surprised by a miracle to tell me that her dying has not happened to reverse my disbelief. So we know that. I think most of us have gone through this type of experience with different kinds of losses. There can be disbelief, shock, um, in many, many ways. Disorientation. Daily life seemed really, really strange you know, in, in certain ways. And then the, um, the sadness came through You know, initially there would be like 10 or 15 times a day when the sadness would just roll through me. And again, I think we probably know versions of this. Although grieving is not always so easy. I I work with people who tell me that on certain matters grieving is inaccessible. It doesn't happen. I I think we weren't really taught so much. And I think on a cultural level, there are many ways we don't grieve. You know, was, there, was, there was a book written in uh, Germany in 1967 called The Inability to Grieve by uh, Alexander and Margaret uh, Michalik. And it was about the inability of Germans to grieve after World War II. The way that they threw themselves into work and the so-called economic miracle. And you know, I've had a lot, quite a few friends who grew up in that period and totally rebelled against their families. They couldn't, you know, the level of denial was so great. And that book and other things started to change things so that in the 80s and 90s, there was a real facing of what happened, including the Holocaust in ways that are far in advance of what we've done in this country. Because I think we have the inability to grieve some of our big losses like what happened to Native Americans, slavery, Jim Crow and so forth. There's, uh, there's denial. There's stuckness, right? So elders who are good at grieving can lead what we need to do. So there'd be the, the sadness. And it was like some t- grief of a big nature. It was like a divide in time. You know, there's before the loss and after the loss. I think many of us know this. I found myself writing a poem called First Times and Last Times. Maybe, maybe many of us have done this, right? First time leaving without waving. <laughs> leaving where she lived and so forth. And one after another, first time doing this, last time doing that. It's a divide, it's a kind of divide in time. And I could see in my dreams that part of me was just saying no. And over time and over, uh, you know, over the four weeks, the the kind of the rolling sadness decreased in time, decreased in, in numbers. Still was happening, but decreased. Something was going on. I could see changes in the dreams. One of the really important things that, that happened was that sometimes there was um, some stuckness. You Because know, I think what we really need to do is see what gets in the way of these emotions just flowing. And That's something we can look at in our practice. And for me, it was sometimes having thoughts regrets. Oh, I should have done this. Relatively clean relation with my mom. But still, oh, I should have known it was life-threatening. And I did a ritual, which I still do at Spirit Rock. I have a bench for when my father died down in the uh, pasture, past the dining hall. And um, I would go there twice a day and sit on the bench and quote-unquote talk to my parents. And I would, you know, and I, you know, I was also getting good guidance from some teachers who basically said anything that feels like it's, any thoughts that are, feel like something's coming up, getting all stuck, air it. Get it out there. Bring it to consciousness. And I would do, I'd bring, you know, I'd say, oh, I really should have known. And I'd talk to my mom. And she'd say, you did beautifully. And the thoughts just would not keep going. So I'm naming certain kinds of ritual as, as a crucial for what we're looking at. Maybe we can go into that more. And over time, you know, there was uh, more acceptance and there was, certain, there was quite a lot of paradox. You know, she's not alive, and in some way she is alive. Right? So there was a kind of living with paradox and a tremendous opening of the heart, which was supported by, I was doing metta quite a number of times a day. And just, the, you know, the heart felt very open. I mean, I, I remember, you know, one of the heights of that was I would just be walking and just feel tearful just looking at the creek. You know, just like, oh my gosh, look at this life, you know. And so it's a gift the gift of the grief, right? And so I mentioned metta, and the heart practices are so crucial for our work with difficult emotions. And you know, I find that if we're opening to something difficult, bringing in heart practices I think is crucial, almost uh, necessary. Uh, just uh, combining with mindfulness. Because the the heart practice, and by heart practices I mean loving-kindness, compassion, joy, equanimity, those are the traditional stations of the heart in core Buddhist practices, so-called the the divine abodes or Brahma-vihara. And then there are a group of practices which I think of as um, honorary Brahma-vihara contemporary Brahmavihara, I think of practices like gratitude, forgiveness, uh, empathy and so forth. And um, the heart practices are really crucial partly because when we do them it balances our energy. It lets us be able to handle more so that we're not just focusing on what's difficult. It sort of lightens us up in, in many ways and really crucial so that our purview is not just what's difficult. It was very crucial for me being with the process of grieving. They help, with, they help with a certain kind of balance. You know, sometimes I work with someone, the person says, you know, I've been really looking into self-judgment a lot and judgment of others and it's, it's getting pretty heavy and I say, okay, one month of joy. <laughs> it's a little bit like that. You know, so um, another way that the heart practices are really crucial is they can serve as antidotes. I was mentioning that before. When there's overwhelm, they can help us get out of the overwhelm. Again, some of the classical uh, approach from the Buddha gave loving kindness as a method to work with fear. I've done that. I, I once was in a camping place where I was told there had been a bear there uh, fairly recently, but they had caught the bear. And I, was, I was at a retreat center where I was camping. And they said, there was a really nice place, and they said, yeah, there was a bear here a week ago, but we caught it and took it far away. And so I said, okay, really nice. Yeah, what was I thinking? <laughs> and then, you know, 9.30 at night comes. Okay, let's go to sleep every sound in the forest (laughs) portends the coming of the bear, (laughs) right? And after a while of seeing my mind get anxious, I said, it's time for metta. I did metta for three hours. No fear and nothing else appeared for the next week. And you can use it in more extreme situations or just... You know, in the middle of the night when there's, uh, you wake up at three and there's self-judgment or some kind of overwhelm, metta is really good then. Other heart practices as well. So it can be an antidote. Uh, we call that an antidote. Doesn't uh, investigate what's there, but it helps us shift so we have, we can come back to balance. And there's a way in which the heart practices can. Um, really be helpful when there's been some quote-unquote mistake or we've done something that we think is unskillful. And there's a way that the heart practices can mend and repair, as in forgiveness and compassion. Interpersonal difficulty. I've done something I think is unskillful. I get on my case and I can work with forgiveness or I can work with uh, compassion. So there's a way that we inevitably quote-unquote, make mistakes, and the heart practices can come along afterwards and mend. Beautiful, beautiful way of working with, with challenges. And they also, when they're developed highly, they can open us up to a vast awareness. They're understood in the Tibetan tradition as immeasurable. They go into a kind of a limitless consciousness that can actually take us beyond beyond time. I think I'll say a few words about forgiveness. And tomorrow we'll work with uh, forgiveness practice. Forgiveness is, uh, again, for me, one of the honorary heart practices. And it can be done in quite a few different ways. Um... I see the essence as coming from the inclination to lead with the wise heart and having the intention not to be stuck with the heart shut down. The heart shut down because I'm negative towards myself or someone else The psychologist Roberto Asagioli said, without forgiveness, life is governed by an endless cycle of resentment and retaliation towards others or towards ourselves. And so forgiveness is really similar to the other heart practices. It's about keeping, the, um, keeping connected to what we might call the awakened heart, keeping with the kind heart, the kind Wise heart, even in difficult circumstances, even when there's pain. And so again, intention plays such a big role. For some, there can be other benefits. Uh, Oscar Wilde once said, uh, "Always forgive your enemies. Nothing annoys them so much." <laughs> there, there are really two kinds of forgiveness practice. One. Is more interpersonal and social, you know, and can be very, very powerful. You know, I I once spent time in a place called Bella Bella in uh, northern Canada on the coast, uh, about 14 hours north of Vancouver by boat. You know, no roads go there. And I was invited by Native American, or they would say First Nations friends, to join in a potlatch that their family was conducting, gift-giving. And I met someone there named Frank Brown who told me his story. He had, when he was 17 or so, he had uh, committed a robbery in the community. And they were going to put him into the uh, Canadian criminal justice system. And his aunt remembered that there was an old native tradition of, which we would call restorative justice, a- in which one could um, Uh, send the offender to an island near the island of Bellabella, about a mile away, and have the person live there for 10 months to 12 months and be visited continually by the elders. Mm. And everyone agreed to do that. And and then Frank spent his uh, 10 months, I think, he came back to the community in what they call a washing ceremony, which was a kind of uh, communal forgiveness ceremony. He was, it's really restorative justice. He was brought back into the community as a full member. And in fact, he's uh, dedicated his life to working with uh, youth in trouble and using the ancient uh, seafaring canoes that uh, hadn't been used so much and he brought those back into use. He's been doing that for almost 20 years. And I met him and got to know him and heard his story. So that's one form. There's a form of community forgiveness. And the, the practice we'll do, and the one you're, we're most familiar with is a forgiveness as an inner practice where we repeat certain phrases, much like metta, that incline the heart towards forgiveness. It's really about um, saying, I don't want to stay with this reactivity. Jack Hornfield says, forgiveness is giving up the hope for a better past. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and maybe just important to say some things that forgiveness is not. And then I'll say a little bit about the practice and we'll do it tomorrow. Um, Forgiveness is not condoning what happened, it's not saying it was okay, it's not saying we shouldn't act, it's not trying to forget it. Dr. King says forgiveness does not mean ignoring what has been done or putting a false label on an evil act. So it doesn't mean any of that, doesn't mean forgetting, condoning, excusing. We can have forgiveness hand in hand with skillful action, saying no, setting boundaries and so forth. It's really about what's going on in my own heart. And that's where, that's where it can be transformative. One of the ways it works is we make a distinction between um, the person and the act. We, we find the act unskillful, we don't want that to happen but well, we sort of hold the person still in our hearts, not easy. And so forgiveness, like all the other heart practices, we train by starting where it's easier and go to where it's more difficult. Or we do a little bit where it's difficult. But we make that distinction between the person and the act. And another story from my uh, mother. My mother was a, you know, had psychological training. And one day, when my brother was five... Uh, he did something that she uh, uh, didn't like. I think he was teasing another kid. And she said to him, I love, love you very much, but don't like what you did. So she was making that distinction as a parent. And, and he said back to her, don't speak to me like a psychologist, just spank me like the other parents do. <laughs> So so in a way, forgiveness very connected with compassion. This is from Bell Hooks. For me, forgiveness and compassion are always linked. How do we hold people accountable for wrongdoing and yet at the same time remain in touch with their humanity enough to believe in their capacity to be transformed? So we'll work with some phrases. Uh, Tomorrow, typically do it in four stages. First, we think of something particularly interpersonal and bring to mind a person and see, um, and we say something like, uh, If I have harmed you in word, thought, or deed, may I be forgiven. And then we uh, express forgiveness as best we can towards the other for what the other person may have done. A third segment works with self-forgiveness, which is often the hardest. It's often the hardest in all of this. And a fourth, which was developed by Larry Yang, forgives reality for being as it has been. (laughs) Some people really like that one. Some people don't. So we'll work with those. Uh, But the essence of it is, with all of these heart practices, I like to say that they're not production practices. I'm not demanding, I, Donald, should be forgiving now. I should have loving kindness. I should have compassion. Rather, it's a process coming from our wisdom and coming from our intentions of wanting to incline in that direction, and it's a training. And we, we continually do it, and we can do it in small ways. I do a lot of forgiveness practice while driving. It's a way, like, we can really take it during the day Here at the retreat, someone does something you don't like, forgiveness practice on the spot. I do it in driving. Oh, you cut me off. No doubt. Somewhere very important to go to. But I I work with what is the residue in my heart. That's the essence of it. We don't produce it. We come from our wisdom and we incline in that direction and it may or may not shift. But it's a practice. All the heart practices are like that. Let me just end with a passage uh, that I read in a a wonderful book uh, that's been very helpful to me called Preparing to Die by Andrew Holacek, who who comes from a Tibetan perspective. He did a bunch of interviews with uh, some great teachers and I'll end with this uh, passage from a local teacher, some of you may know, Anam Tupton, who sometimes teaches here, li- uh, teaches in, what, Point Richmond, in the Bay Area. And uh, this comes back to the original point about really the, our core practices, the ones we've looked at, how to be with difficulties and the way we practice in general ultimately not being different from how we practice when the challenging phenomena of aging and dying come up. So this is uh, Anam Thupten. What you've got now is what you're going to get when you die. (laughs) It's kind of direct. (laughs) This is what Buddhism says. There's an expression in Tibetan Buddhism that says, where you are going into the future, can be known by looking at the color of your mind now. So I don't think that there is a preparation for death separate from that of life. My advice is to become awakened as soon as possible. (laughs) Then at the time of death, everything's taken care of. (laughs) There is no advice separately for death and for life. Same advice for life and for death. If you don't know how to live, then you don't know how to prepare for death either. So the question is, how do you want to live? Do you want to live as an awakened being? So thank you for your kind attention. And we'll have walking meditation in this beautiful place. Of course, you can stay and sit here a while if you want. We'll come back at nine for the uh, uh, chanting and sitting. Very much, if you have energy, not to be missed. Wonderful. Thank you for listening.